millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're sharing some favourite food shows this week and the BBC's food programme turns 40 this year. With a mission to explore the world of food, from culture to cooking, from politics to pleasure, each week host Sheila Dillon, producer Dan Saladino and regular contributors, including the food writer Tim Hayward, tuck into all sorts of stories about the foods and drinks we're consuming. Here's Dan Saladino and the food historian Polly Russell sharing some stories about seeds. It was the topic tackled at last year's Oxford Food Symposium by a range of speakers, including Professor Simon Hiscock from the Oxford Botanic Garden. As the great uh, tropical botanist Corner once described a seed, it's a baby plant with a food supply in a little wooden box to protect it. Around 380 million years ago, the climate of our planet changed. Earth became drier, plants had to adapt. And that is when seeds evolved. Plants had been reproducing and surviving in almost tropical rainforest conditions before. And then this gradual change to an arid environment led natural selection to produce seeds and seed plants. Which was a very, very clever move. The evolution of the seed allowed plants to be able to disperse and survive without water and create a sort of preservation box that could last for many, many years, if not centuries. And, of course, there was a time also among seed plants when flowers didn't exist. And the flowering plants, which are a very specialised form of seed plant, came much later, at the end of the Jurassic period, and diversified in the Cretaceous period from about 140 million years ago onwards which would in turn become significant for us humans. Flowering plants are also able to produce fruits which come from other parts of a flower. Most food comes directly or indirectly from flowering from plants. From flowering plants, and, and flowering plants make up well over 90% of all the land plants we see today, and the majority of our food comes either directly or indirectly from the seeds and fruits of flowering plants. So think of some of the food you'll eat today as having a 380 million year story behind it. We take for granted now all these plants and foods that are available to us, tomatoes, potatoes, brassicas, onions. And yet actually what we learn is how precarious these things are, that we might lose them. And we heard that from Eleanor Brennan, who works at the Millennium Seed Bank for the Royal Botanic Gardens. And in her talk, she came up with some scary sounding statistics about what is being lost and why that matters. So there's currently around 400,000 plants known and more are discovered every year. And that's fantastic because all life depends on plants. 
but one in five of those is currently threatened with extinction. It's a thousand times higher that rate of extinction than the rate in the fossil record. So if we look back at fossils, we can see when things went extinct in the past and you can work out the rate at which they did. And so this is now down to human activity within our environment. Huge population, human population expansion, loss of habitat. So, I mean, an immediate example is loss of forest to oil palm plantations, things like that. A large monoculture of agricultures uh, are having a huge impact. Climate change is having an impact. So out in the wild, these plants are really on the knife edge. Why does what you described matter and why might that have an impact on our relationship with food supply going into the future? At the moment, 60% of the calorific intake of the globe comes from just three species, so rice, wheat and corn. That's not a very sustainable base when there's 50,000 edible plants out there. We're so dependent on these three. And within each of those species, there's been a narrower and narrower selection of the seeds farmers get to plant. Take breadwheat as one example. That was one which was hit by this uh, wheat stripe rust um, back in 2010 and harvest was lost. And And so the rust was the problem, but also it's a fragile crop because I think you said 70% of the genetic diversity within that crop... has been lost through that breeding process. So as they make these varieties and then the breeds, they've been honed to specifically adapted to give us bigger seed heads and to suit the environment of those uh, monocultures. And so when they get hit by these pests and diseases, they, they go down. And so plant experts from Kew travelled to some of the most remote parts of the world in search of wild seeds that could one day provide a source of diversity we'll need for our future food supply. Some some are quite weedy, some you might actually find in a road verge, but others are going to be on the side of a, a mountain and quite inaccessible. And so we're really trying to go back out and get the diversity which has been lost from these crops as they've been bred over uh, centuries and millennia even. What I loved about Eleanor's talk was picturing these people all around the world intrepidly going and collecting in the most remote areas. Uh, They sounded like the Indiana Joneses of the seed world. They (laughs) really did. Going out and doing this incredibly important work of collecting seeds which are uh, endangered that might be lost and bringing them back. Well, another thing that strikes me is that each seed does carry a story. And one that you were told comes from Mexico. Yes, I spoke to the historian David Sutton, and his talk was called Amaranth, Food of the Gods, Seed of the Devil. Great title. (laughs) And I, well, you'll find out why. I started by asking him just a very simple question. What is amaranth? A purple spinach-like or brassica-like plant that grows up to a a height slightly less than the height of a human being, a glorious purple colour. The purple plant then sets seed and one can cook and eat the seed, one can grind the seed to bake with it and it's actually a delightful tasting food to this day still mostly found in health food shops and it's also got a very very high nutritional value which made me wonder why aren't we all eating amaranth today what stopped this seed spreading around the world to become a popular food i started to understand when david explained about why amaranth appealed to the ancients there's definitely something about the plant amaranth which has an aura about it and it's always, as far as archaeologists can tell, been involved in religious ceremonies in Mesoamerica right back before the Aztecs and the Mayas to ancient Mexican civilizations. 
And so when the Spanish conquistadors arrived in Mexico in the 16th century, they witnessed things which would have made them extremely suspicious of this seed. There are a number of uh, accounts by priests who came with the conquistadores uh, describing the ceremonies in some detail, and the ceremonies included quite often the Aztecs would capture people alive and then sacrifice them alive and pull the heart from the body while the person was still living, take the blood from the heart and mix it with amaranth and seed and then make it into, uh, into biscuits. And they also sometimes made it into life-size models of people. So there'd be this complete uh, effigy of a human being um, made out of amaranth seed and human blood. And that's one important reason why amaranth failed to spread around the world. Unlike so many other Mexican foods, which have become an absolutely quintessential part of our diet now, tomatoes, avocados, papaya, peanuts, all these products which originated in Mexico and which the Spanish spread into Europe from Mexico, and the great exception is amaranth, because of amaranth's involvement in human sacrifice and cannibalistic practices. Food historian David Sutton from an episode of the food programme called Seeds, a 400 million year old food story. And here's another one all about how Instagram and social media is changing restaurant design and the food that's getting cooked for us at places like the Wild Food Cafe in London. I feel like it changed in terms of the presentation and most of our Instagram following is female and it's very much female-led the way the food looks. Um, I do think about food in terms of Instagram a lot, but I don't... I'm not the only person in charge of making the food, so whenever chefs prepare new dishes, we discuss and I'm like, okay, if if that was a bit more pink, it would just look better. So we kind of negotiate and it usually is incorporated in some way. But I feel there is a lot more personal engagement now rather than just presenting the brand. That's what we're currently working on. Something the owner of the Wild Food Cafe just said really struck me. It's the sense that Instagram almost became a job in its own right. She mentioned having to post sometimes daily, but certainly several times a week to maintain the same level of engagement she had in the past. That, to me at least, is quite different from defences I've heard of Instagram in the past of it being a fulfilling form of self-expression. It just feels like admin. The thing that struck me was that she often goes to talk to the chef about the images. Can things be a little pinker? That really leapt out at me. And I think it's only going to become more and more frequent as Instagram becomes more and more dominant. I think you may even see, even if they don't exist at the moment, menus designed purely with Instagram in mind. Instagram changing food. Is it Mm. changing the food landscape? There's a real clear example. I think quite a terrifying one, if we're honest. George's big thoughts. (laughs) Number six. (laughs) It's an interesting question whether, first of all, Instagram has changed the way we eat, which I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, A follow-up question would be, has it changed it for the better or for the worse? In New York, for example, there was an article written recently claiming that Instagram had ruined sushi because everyone's spending whole minutes photographing their food, um, whereas high-end sushi chefs would argue it 
really you only have about three seconds before the temperatures um, are off kilter. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got someone in San Francisco arguing that Instagram has made the dim sum of the Bay Area infinitely better because they're more playful, more creative um, and more fun. I think the other, and this is a broader issue with Instagram rather than with food Instagram specifically, there are all sorts of open questions, I think questions that haven't been answered satisfactorily about mental health, about the impacts of seeing people living their, uh, in inverted commas, best life on Instagram uh, whilst you're sitting at home by yourself, the sort of habit-forming dimensions of this platform. I remember speaking purely personally, I, when I first started using it, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world that you'd think of photographing your food. I then moved through this sort of progression of becoming increasingly oblivious to other people when I was at the dinner table to the point where I'm now kind of perfectly happy taking photos in front of my family, which, again, they would have mocked me for five years ago and now it seems second nature. Um, I think that's an odd thing to do. It is, objectively speaking, a really weird thing to do. So step one, find the light. Um, Over to the window at the front of the house. It's natural daylight. That works best. The producer meets a man who runs workshops teaching you how to take better food Instagrams. If you are in the middle of the restaurant, uh, you can do a lot worse than ask your dining partner to hold a napkin over the top of the food. That often filters out the very worst of that orange light. You often see orange plates on your Instagram food. The man with the tips, Matt Inwood. 13.8 thousand followers. And then it's just holding down onto the screen to determine our focus, but also to determine the exposure. And we can take our photo. Matt's photo for the food programme? 276 likes. Um, Down here, we've got a very simple open sandwich, some leftovers from the fridge, uh, broccoli, walnut pesto, beetroot hummus, all on toasted um, bruschetta. The most important thing to me is bright colours. So the toast looks nice, the wood background looks nice, the bright greens and... Beetroot, you said. Beetroot hummus, yes. Pink, very, very Instagram-friendly colour, especially in the food world. Um, So pinks tend to really stand out on Instagram feeds. Some of how Instagram changed food from the food programme with food columnist George Reynolds, and that's produced by Miles Ward for BBC Radio 4.